Good morning. Just a quick word. Sometimes we need to do these kinds of things. Uh, we sometimes say the invitation is not something that we have um, a direct command to do. It's a matter of expedience. And so uh, it would be not unscriptural not to have a, an invitation, but what a wasted opportunity every time. And so we do offer it. I just want you to know, and John would have been fine if we had all sat down for the scripture reading. I want you to make sure you know that. The reason we do it is Nehemiah chapter 8. And that's a wonderful practice. That when the word of God was read, and actually it was with spontaneity, they weren't directed or asked to stand. They did so in reverence. And, And that's the idea that we're conveying. Whenever God speaks... It is important for us to be reverent and to take notice of that. Now, whatever our exterior posture is, we should always have that feeling of reverence. But certainly it's good and a great reminder for us. But let's just always remember, that's a great tradition, but it's not something that we must do. But I'm glad that we do it here. You ever had a problem in your life that started seemingly small and then it grew larger than life? And you found yourself consumed with your thoughts. It kept you up at night. And it began to engage and draw in all of your emotions. You began to feel anxious, maybe even angry, stressed and and fearful. It, it, It affected your appetite. It caused it to be an obsession in your thoughts. And maybe you even felt physically sick. You know, Job was in the midst of an unparalleled suffering except for what Jesus went through at the cross, I believe. And in the book of Job, he's right as he's trying to defend himself to his friends who are actually pointing to him and saying, you're the cause of the problems that you find yourself in. And he said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He's like a flower that comes forth quickly and withers. And he flees like a shadow and does not remain. Job chapter 14, verse 1 and verse 2. You ever had a circumstance in life that made you feel that way? I suggest that it would be difficult for me to talk with you at any length without understanding that you have had some kind of traumatic moment that you struggled with. Trouble comes in many forms, and it comes from many different directions. But we see from a very cursory reading of the Bible that God understands all about this. And He lets us know He understands not only by the truths that we can find uncovered in His Word, but also by some of the righteous people that He puts forward for us to consider the circumstances of their lives. I think about Job. You remember that circumstance we just mentioned in Job 14, the context surrounding that? And at the very beginning of his suffering, in the midst of his struggles with the trouble that he's facing, he begins to ask some of the most basic questions of life in Job chapter 3. Why was I even born? And why can I just die? I think about David. I know what David is writing in Psalm 22 is messianic. It is a prophecy from which Jesus is going to quote multiple times as he hangs on the cross of Calvary. But don't you know that David also was feeling this in first in his own life when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was afraid to do the work that God called him to do. In Jeremiah chapter 1, such that God had to say to him, Do not be afraid of their faces. God says, I have a message. You must deliver it. 
And what did he get as payment for the message that he delivered? Well, the first thing that happens to him back to back is that he is thrown in a dungeon for faithfully proclaiming the word of God, Jeremiah 37. And then what happens right after that is that he is hung into, some say a cistern, but others would say it was the cesspool of Jerusalem. And he is hung by rags down in the mire in Jeremiah 38. As we think about the struggles of this life, the troubles that we go through, and the fact that they're multifaceted, I want us to see if we can't look at a text that can help us in a very general way. To look at the instruction that God has given to us when we struggle with trouble. And of all the different places that we might go in Scripture, I want us to look, and I hope if you uh, had your Bibles open for the Scripture reading that you'll keep it there in Psalm chapter 10. Because these inspired words of the psalmist, I think, can help us when we struggle with trouble. Now, before we get into the specific contents, I want us to step back and look at Psalm 10 for just a moment. And what you'll find is that there are two classes of people that are under consideration in this psalm. That there are the wicked and there are the afflicted. The wicked are mentioned almost twice as often as the afflicted. You'll find the wicked mentioned some seven times in this psalm. And the wicked have synonymous terms. They are the greedy one. Do you notice that as you walk through? They are the evildoer. And they are in a more general way. They are those of the earth. And so as you come across those terms, these are this class of people that the psalmist is so concerned about. The wicked. The oppressors. But then there's that other class of people. There are the afflicted. Now, I would submit to you that if you are a faithful child of God, if you are striving to serve Christ and you have put him first in your life and you find yourself in a place of struggling with trouble, I want you to identify with the afflicted. Well, who are they? They are those that are presented for us as the unfortunate as you walk through the psalm. They are the humble. They are the orphan and the oppressed. In the middle of that psalm, they are called the innocent. That doesn't mean sinless. That doesn't mean someone without any kind of fault or flaw or struggle or weakness. In fact, we know that in the afflicted are, all those that are in the afflicted are those who have struggles with sin. But they're striving to serve God. And as they strive to serve God, trouble comes anyway. And they are left to try to reconcile that. You struggle with trouble, and so do I. So what do we do? How do we look at that when the troubles come into our lives? How do we get through that in whatever form they come? I'd like us to make four observations from this psalm, and the lesson is yours. The first thing I'd like for you to observe with me from this psalm is our perception in time of trouble. It's the first 11 verses of the psalm. It's over half of the verses as we have had it divided in the makeup of this psalm. And I want you to notice that before we get to any of the solutions, that the psalmist slows down and he contemplates the presence of the problem of, of the struggle of, of trouble. And you know, when we're going through trouble, we relate to this. We know the platitudes. We know how we ought to think, you know, how we ought to feel. We even know that in the midst of these struggles, when somebody comes up to us and asks us, how are you doing? We know, ready-made, what we're supposed to say. And really, generally speaking, because we don't have the time and the context as the giver or the sender, 
we are perhaps right to say, at least in some sense, I'm doing fine. Because in some sense, maybe we are spiritually, perhaps. But the psalmist does something very important for us. He allows us to see that it's right. It's okay for us to have our vision blurred by the trouble. It is part of the process. You don't need to feel guilty that you struggle and ask why. Because that's exactly what the psalmist does. Our vision can be blinded by tears and rage as we try to understand why it is this way that I'm striving to serve the Lord and I'm struggling. So you'll notice that there are two perceptions that he has that maybe you can relate to. In his time of trouble, he saw God as far off. Verse 1. He's wanting to know, why God aren't you near? Where are you in the midst of all of this? And as he examines that and sees that, he expresses something that's very common. You know, I love to read history books and in any kind of genre, but... You know, I have read a lot with regard to the happenings of World War II, and there was a lot of injustice, and there was a lot of hurt that was inflicted upon even groups of people. And Ravensbrück was one of many concentration camps that existed all over Europe. It was actually in German, Germany. And at an earlier part of the war, there were 10,000 women that were crowded into barracks, and they laid on lice-infested mats and cots. They were subjected to utter humiliation and pathetic uh, surroundings. And one particular incident that's been recorded for us, there was in that large barrack of women a small Bible study that was taking place on one end of the barracks and was being led by a woman named Betsy. But across the way from there, there was a, a woman who, when this Bible study began, jumped up from her cot and she came over and she says... If your God is so good, why does he allow such suffering? And it was then that she presented a hand that had been wrapped in bandages and she took it off, those dirty rags, and then she extended mangled fingers and and her hand. And she said, I am a first violinist in a symphony orchestra. Did your God will this? This woman had come to a point in her grief and her trials with trouble and problems that she had come to the conclusion that God had abandoned His care for her. I don't know anything about how that turned out, but I know that even good and righteous Christian families throughout time have gone through times of trouble where surely they're wondering, where is God in all of this? Now, the psalmist is going to turn in the right direction, but before he gets there, he's struggling with where God is. But do you notice that in his perception that his greatest focus before he gets to the answer is that in his trouble, it seemed that evildoers were prospering and were in control. He was trying to reconcile the fact that you have the people who are the afflicted, who seem to be in abundance, who seem to have everything going their way. They are in good health, they're in control, they have the power, they have the influence. And not only that, not only are they not hurting, but they're hurting those that are righteous. This isn't right. He wants to know, why is this? I think we're tempted in every generation that lives to think that we're in the most godless, unrighteous generation of history. That nobody's ever had it like we're going through. 
But we remind ourselves that the majority of people in any generation can be biblically analyzed as the wicked. And in every generation, the righteous are left to, to answer, why do the wicked hurt us so? One of the greatest examples was in a psalm written by Asaph. In Psalm 73, and in this rather long psalm, here's the gist of it. Instead of seeking to, to cite or quote that, if you would put it into 20th century language, and I say 20th, you'll know why in a minute. If Asaph wrote it today, he would say, Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder. Why it should be thus all the day long? Why there are others living around us, never molested, though in the wrong. You thought that way. You have wondered, how could it be this way? And Asaph, one of God's leaders, found himself in that circumstance. And you know what changed things for him? He went to worship. And when he got to worship, his perspective was cleared up. And he understood what was the end for him. And he understood what was the end for them. You know, it is helpful. God has so much that He accomplishes when we assemble together. And one of the great things that He accomplishes is that He restores our focus. We stimulate one another unto love and good deeds. Of all the things that are competing for our attention, and as we're trying to put them in their proper priorities, when we come together, we get an understanding of the priorities. I appreciate what Gary said before the Lord's Supper this morning. And why we, what we're focusing on when we're around the Lord's table, it gives us new perspective. But don't begrudge the psalmist for taking some time to articulate what we often feel and to understand that there are going to be times when you feel that way and you ask, why are these things happening? And so we see perception in a time of trouble. But you know, I don't know that this psalm would be very helpful for us if the psalm began in verse 1 and ended in verse 11. And I want you to see that he presents one problem, but he presents three solutions. Isn't that our awesome God? When you're facing something that seems bigger than you, and you don't know how to, to, to get to the end of that, it was Teddy Roosevelt that said that when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Sometimes we find ourselves at the end of our rope of faith, and all we can do is tie a knot and hang on. But there's more to be done than just that. Notice with me what the rest of this psalm indicates for us. The second thing we see is the importance of prayer in a time of trouble in verses 12 through 15. It's good for him to be knocked off of his feet and down onto his knees. But I want you to see what he does when he gets there. He prays. And as he prays, that prayer really can be divided into three categories. There are are three specific prayer requests. And the first thing that he requests of God is deliverance. Some of you may be old enough to remember the Andes Mountain uh, airplane crash of 1972. In 1972, there was mostly a team of rugby players that, by the way, I can't remember that, but I, again, I read that somewhere. But um, just in case you needed to know that, there were 45 people on that airplane. And as they were flying, this Uruguayan uh, rugby team, to Chile for a match, weather forced down their plane and it crashed on the top of that remote mountain. 45 people. As... 
the crash occurred, there were people that died in the crash, and there were people who died in the days and the weeks that followed that. And those who did survive the crash, and there were quite a few of them, they awoke one morning to the horrific circumstance of an avalanche that had buried their plane as they slept. They were able to dig out of that. They had working radios. They could hear. They could hear the efforts being made by rescuers to get them off of that mountain. But after nine days, the, the, the phone, the uh, radio still working, they heard the collective announcement that they were going to call off the search because they were presumed dead. Can you imagine knowing how fully alive you are and that all had given up any kind of effort to rescue you? Well, within two weeks after the avalanche, two of the rugby players decided they were going to cross the mountain and try to go and get help. And they hiked back up on top of that mountain. After 72 days, 16 of the 45 passengers survived. And they were interviewed, these survivors, for years. And as they uh, were recounting their experience, certainly they spoke of horrific things that they went through. But they were amazed as anybody that any of them came off of that mountain alive. Let me ask you, you heard some incredible stories of deliverance and rescue? There is nothing to compare with the rescue that God provides for us. We shouldn't be spiritually alive. But we can be through our God. And the psalmist, as he is struggling on his knees, he prays for God to deliver him, to help him. And he knows that God will. He also is praying to God... And in his prayer, he makes a request for God to remember. He wants God to remember two classes of people. He wants God to remember him and his affliction and all those who are afflicted like him. But he also wants God to remember the wicked. In fact, if you look in verses 12 through 15, he spends more time wanting God to remember the wicked. He wants God in his remembrance. He speaks to God with this Perplexity. Why have the wicked forgotten God? He is indignant. As he looks and he says, they oppress the righteous. But he's also confident in saying, God, I know that you will hear. I know that you will rescue. You know, the, the Bible in both Testaments uses a phrase, but it's more frequently used in the Old Testament, where God Himself says, I will remember. He says, I want you to search out the wicked until, there, there, until there's no more wickedness to be found. And God says, I will remember. You know, God is going to ultimately remember. In the judgment, God's going to remember. God's going to remember those who were faithful to Him, those who walked in the light of His Son, those who overcame the struggles of this life. And he's going to remember those who were defiant of his will, who were rebellious to his word, and who even hurt his righteous people. You know, I have often heard it said in, in a, an explanation of First Timothy that I would never want to mess with the bride of Christ. I know I have, I have had a few occasions where my Christianity was tested when somebody was ugly to my wife. And I think sometimes providentially God has intervened where if I had gotten to that person in that moment, it might not have been a good thing. Maybe you understand that feeling as you think about your spouse and how you're, you're protective of them. But our Lord Jesus has a bride. And how does He feel when His bride has been messed with? 
You see, God is going to remember. Hebrews 4 and verse 13 says that there is nothing hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of whom we have to do. God will remember. Hebrews 4 and verse 13. He looks over all the sons of the earth. Psalm 33 verse 13. And He sees all the dwelling places and all the habitations. The psalmist comes to a realization as he's on his knees, as he's in prayer, that God will remember. And it gives him confidence. But then I want you to notice a third thing that we can observe from this psalm. And that is praise in the time of trouble. We see that in verse 16. It's it's the logical next step. You have come face to face with your own perhaps misperceptions that it seems like God is far off and the wicked are prospering and I'm hurting and it's not fair. And so God help me remember what's going on and give me this confidence that I need. And the next thing that happens is He does. It's as if He springs to His feet with a new resolve and a new purpose. A heart that has been bowed in prayer is now exultant because he has a better feeling and view of who God is. And if you look in verse 16, what do you see? You see something about his nature, God's nature. God is the Lord. Now this is a special word. There are different names for God in the Old Testament. This is the name Yahweh, Jehovah. It is the personal name of God. It means the uncaused cause, the eternal one, also the one with all power. And so it brings together these different characteristics of God. And so how does he have confidence that things are going to ultimately be well? Because God is Jehovah, the uncaused cause, the Redeemer. And then... He sees something about his position. The Lord is king. This is his authority. This is his power. God has this. God is in control. But we also see something about his duration. When you have struggled with problems, isn't it true that there are some that kind of come quickly and then they disappear kind of quickly? But haven't you had some other problems that you might classify as long-standing, as chronic? Something, perhaps, a burden that you have carried. The Apostle Paul would understand that. He would say that I have, and I don't know when it came into his life, but I know how long it stayed, apparently. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, despite the great opportunities God has given to him, he said to humble him, there was a thorn in the flesh that he had to carry. He asked God, please remove this. God said, my grace is sufficient to you. But he still had the same God day after day watching over him. And his confidence was in that. He said, even when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, I need to understand something about my king. He, the Lord, is king forever and ever. You will never have a better king. You will not have this king replaced by a king who would be characterize as worse. You will never have to worry about your king being replaced at all. Your king is the eternal king. He's always been king. He will always be king. And so you can lift up yourself with with the realization that this king is always your king. He'll always walk with you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never leave you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And that should bring about our praise. But then finally, there's the proper perspective that we can have in a time of trouble. It's the last two verses. If you try to to encapsulate it and say, what one word describes how the psalmist, the writer, feels 
He was perplexed, but now he has insight. He was indignant, but now he has peace. He was confident that God would step in, but he's now more confident than ever. Now keep this in mind as you read Psalm 10. Nowhere does the psalm say when the affliction was going to be over. The psalm nowhere says when the oppressor was going to face his. But he has confidence that God is in control. As you go through your trouble, there are some things that you can do to help you to have a proper perspective. Sometimes what you can do as you can look at those around you, and as you come to see the details of what's going on in their life, it will give you some proper perspective. That yours may be unique. And I've heard it said to me, you've heard it said, right, that you can always find somebody who's struggling through more than you are. And while none of us would invite this into our lives, another thing we can do for proper perspective is to see what good may come out of that trial, that trouble. God doesn't cause it. Listen, God doesn't bring evil into our lives. But here's something I do know. God can bring good out of the worst of circumstances. The worst thing that Satan may try to do to us, that the world may do to us, God can work with us through that for the best outcome possible. I had a woman who wrote me, uh, not long ago, and she was talking about uh, a problem that's going on in her life, and she said, "I am reminded of a saying that God, pl- that man plans and God laughs." And she talked about a circumstance, a, a nerve damage in her neck that was so bad she couldn't stay alone by herself. It was excruciating pain, and she said she had the perspective to say that God's plans are better. God brings about a better outcome. She wasn't blaming God for this, but. She saw it as an opportunity for refinement in her own spiritual lives. This is a scary thought. All of us need refining. I'm going to tell you what I will never pray. I will never say, God, bring some trial into my life so that I can be a better Christian. But God knows what's best. And what I can be on the other side of that trial is a more refined, a more righteous child of His. But I can also get proper perspective by comparing now with then. The hurts will cease. The pain needs never be eternal. Because there's coming a day when all the trials and all the problems will cease. And what God would say to me through passages like Psalm 10 is... Tie a knot in your rope of faith and hang on. I've carried you. You'll see, ultimately. Hey, what's the worst trouble somebody could go through? Could it be a disfiguring accident? Deforming accident? Could it be financial ruin? Could it be the deterioration of your health? Could it be the loss of a loved one? Could it be the fall of our nation? I don't know what it could be. But I know that God gives us perspective. God indicates to us something that we shouldn't necessarily have to focus on. Why is this happening to me? But how can this make me better? 
I have confidence in Romans 8 and verse 28. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I step back and say, I want to serve God's purpose with my life. I can be confident that ultimately all will be well. Maybe life has never been better for you. But it won't always be that way. Maybe there are frays in your rope and your hands are tired and you're ready to let go. Don't. Because ultimately, you will see. Your trouble may be spiritual this morning. The trouble you face may be that you realize, maybe with guilt, maybe you have concluded that there's no way God could forgive you because of what you've done, because of your past, because of the kind of struggles that you're going through. Let me say this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't provide the answer for ourselves, but listen, He can. Maybe you have served sin all of your life, and maybe you feel like my opportunity has passed. You're breathing, you have an opportunity. Do you remember Jesus tells a parable about those who entered into the vineyard at different parts of the day? Some in the early morning. Aren't you thankful? Hey, I saw Kathy showed me on the the Lehman Avenue members group our young people helping to feed the homeless yesterday. Wasn't that awesome? They're serving God in the morning time of their lives. That time may have already passed for you. You can't do that. You know what you can do? You're facing your final hour at some point. Maybe you're in the hour before your final hour. And you're saying, I want to work in his vineyard. You know what God says through that parable? Come on. I need you. If that's you, don't let your greatest trouble, and your greatest trouble is your sin problem, don't let that defeat you. Respond to his grace. By doing what he says to have the benefits of that grace. Won't you believe that Jesus is God's son? I know you do. And believing that, won't you repent of your sins and be baptized so that you can contact the blood of his son and have your sins washed away? And if you're a child of God who has allowed the troubles of this life to shake your faith, maybe you've let go of that rope of faith. Do you know what? You can grab it again. God allows that. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what makes that promise so wonderful? It's based on His nature and His character. He is faithful and just to forgive. So if you're a child of God who's left the light for the darkness, come back. And He will forgive you. And whatever you have to face in this life, your greatest problem is solved. Is this your invitation? If it is... Won't you come right now as we stand and sing?